This is a Federal News Network podcast. Taming the sometimes chaotic cloud computing arrangements and learning to love artificial intelligence. Those are among the technology trends for 2023 identified by thinkers at Deloitte. For more on this and what else federal IT managers will have to deal with next year, we turn to Deloitte's public sector chief technology officer, Scott Buckholtz. Scott, good to have you on. Tom, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. An interesting list you have compiled here for the year ahead. Some of them are fairly basic technology like taming multi-cloud chaos, which I think everyone can relate to. But you also have immersive internets for the enterprise and some more ethereal sounding things. So let's begin with what you think is the top thing that's going to be happening in the year ahead from a technology standpoint. Well, there's sort of what I think and what I hope. How's that? I think that part of what's going on, Tom, is people are realizing we all have collectively tons of investments in cloud. And those are not just the infrastructure as a service investments that we're making, but also software as a service increasingly so. And part of what people are starting to find in that regard is we don't necessarily have a consistent way to apply policies across them. And expecting individual humans to do individual configuration of individual things just doesn't scale. And so I think if you were to ask me where I think people are going to be most focused next year, I think it's that because we're all focused on the problem in front of us. Right. And that kind of leads to the idea of automation of some of these high speed and high volume tasks like making sure policies are consistent across cloud. Otherwise, your cybersecurity breaks down. So that would be what Deloitte is calling opening up to AI, learning to trust our AI colleagues. There's been a lot of work done on AI, a lot of investment in AI in both the civilian and DOD sides. Are we seeing results yet? And are we seeing people embrace this in operation and not just in theory? We are starting to see people embrace AI in operations. And that is true across the government and you know globally around the world when we look at other industries as well. I think what's interesting about AI is that in many cases, people's mental model is often that artificial intelligence and computers are like calculators. And so what we're looking for, somehow we expect them to be perfect. They're going to be superhuman in some ways and perfect, not just as good or better than our best colleague. One of the easiest ways to think about this is if you've ever sat behind the car with a teenage driver and compared that to a self-driving car, I'm not convinced that my teenage children are actually safer than the automation. But we worry more about the automation because we're expecting computers to be perfect not just better than most humans. And the reason that that's actually really important is because if we start to think of AI as a really wise colleague who might just tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, Tom, hey, Scott, maybe you should take a second look at this thing, then we can actually deal with it more intelligently because we know how to deal with a wise colleague who's often right, but sometimes wrong, as opposed to an infallible oracle that's always right. And so I think governments will actually find that the more they can think about wise automated colleagues, the better that we'll actually have in terms of AI adoption, because we won't then be looking for perfection 
And we know how to manage quirks and foibles of humans who are imperfect. Sure. So an example of the application of that might be, say, an agency that has an adjudication function and they've got 500,000 cases that are backlogged. Maybe 400,000 of them are routine. You can almost rubber stamp them. The 100,000, you got to flag those where you can then have a rational way of allocating the expensive commodity, which is human time and discretion. That's right. Healthcare has actually been doing this for years. They've been automating in the insurance market some of the back office approvals. And what the smartest way to do it tends to be is when the AI algorithm is highly confident that the answer is yes, you should be, for example, approved for a procedure, the AI is allowed to make that decision. But if the AI thinks the answer is no with a high degree of confidence, or the AI simply isn't confident that it knows the right answer, that gets routed to a human. And so in that way, it's not that you're enabling the AI to make bad things happen faster, right? You're basically letting the AI deal with the routine things that we're confident are correct, but anything that looks squirrely or anytime you're tempted to say no, it gets a second review. Maybe AI should be called IA, which would be intelligent automation. Well, no charge. many of the best use cases are, in fact, for some version of that, yes. We're speaking with Scott Buckholtz. He's Chief Technology Officer for Government and the Public Sector at Deloitte. And I wanted to ask you about this idea that you see for the future through the looking glass. You're calling it immersive Internet for the enterprise. Is this mainly in the training area? Or how do you see immersive types of environments applying in the federal government? I think the easiest place for most of us to envision the future of things like virtual reality and and other things in the near term is absolutely in training. And if you think about it, anywhere where you're trying to put a person in danger, so that can be inspectors who are inspecting electrical equipment or repair technicians or service technicians who are dealing with dangerous objects, everywhere to people who are being put, you know, social workers in state governments who are actually being put in, you know, difficult situations in homes and trying to know how to react to things. That range of use cases actually turns out to be people learn better, they retain better, and, you know, you get more value from the training than doing that same thing on a screen or with a piece of paper. Further out, it gets more interesting because if you look around, we're all trying to figure out how do we move beyond the little glass rectangles that we've been living with for 40 or 50 years. People are trying to figure out what is the future of the way we interact with technology. It's probably more voice, more vision, more all sorts of things, and far less keyboards and mice and clicking and typing and that sort of thing. So to some extent, we're seeing that even in applications deployed to the public with facial recognition and sort of three dimensional ways of getting through traveling checkpoints. That's not quite immersive technology, but it is a step beyond the interactions that we've had. So is that a decent example, do you think? Yeah, I've even heard one of the one of the executives at CBP one time say publicly, look, we get better security and better efficiency all at the same time through using some of these things. So that's absolutely a great example. All right. And what about the tech workforce? I mean, you have said that there needs to be a reimagining of the tech workforce with flexibility being built in there. Tell us more about that particular finding. Well, the first thing I'll say is, you know, the government becomes an even more attractive employer when economic times are hard and so or or uncertain. And so we're clearly moving into an environment of more economic uncertainty. Who knows how it's going to go? But That means that this is an opportunity for government to be a more attractive employer to 
people who have experience in areas that government wants to get into and cares about. There are two other things to think about, too, which is we're also seeing more creative ways to get different people into the workforce, you know, different training programs, different levels of flexibility, different changes in terms of the requirements. And that's helping attract people who wouldn't ordinarily have gone into IT uh, or technology you know, some of whom there are data science programs and development programs and other things where people who may not have four-year college degrees are getting training to enable them to join the workforce productively. Those are great sources of talent for government as well. And then I think the group we sometimes forget is existing employees, because it's easy to overlook with the rate of change of technology, most of our skills are actually atrophying. And we really need to remember that we need to not just bring in new talent from the outside that has the experience we need, but retrain the people we have to have the experience we need them to move towards. All right. We could go on and on on all of these, and they're pretty interesting. But I just wanted to not leave out the idea of getting back to some hardware here. The yeah. mainframe modernization hits its stride. What are you talking about here? Not really the iron itself, but the software systems that are run on mainframes? That's right. I think the, the thing we sometimes forget to acknowledge is the systems that run on our mainframes and have run for decades have actually served the mission well for longer than some of us have been alive in some cases. And what we actually, what turns out is when the mission evolves, when the mission changes, when expectations change, we need the flexibility to be able to move to meet those. And so what people are doing is they're saying, look, the traditional technologies that let us manage things on the mainframe are not nearly as agile as the things that, you know, the web developers of today use. So how do we use technology to help people increasingly move stuff off the mainframes, componentize things on the mainframes? How do we take advantage of the AI you know, and other things and the other technologies we've developed to chunk things up differently, to solve the problem differently so that we can better take advantage of modern technologies so that we can meet the mission where it is, not at where it was, you know, 20 years ago when we got started. As you state here, a funny thing happened on the road to obsolescence and people still <laughs> keep these things going. And really, it's just a calculating piece of machinery and you might as well use it for what it's best suited for. That's absolutely right. Well, we could go on and on, but uh, we are out of time. I do recommend looking at this report, if nothing else, for the great artwork you've generated to go with it. And so blow it up on a big screen and you might get your find yourself stuck on the artwork. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. We used AI to generate it, so it's a little bit of taking our own medicine. What would Rembrandt say? Scott Buckholtz is Chief Technology Officer for Government and the Public Sector at Deloitte. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, uh, one of the 
things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he 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 faces everything with optimism. And 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy and you should you should you know, send your this child away. Don't don't you know, and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Start a journey, not a fad. Kick off your fitness journey with up to $500 off Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, or Tread packages. Choose the package that will take your training to the next level with accessories like our cycling shoes, heart rate band, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. Join now and you'll see why 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All access membership separate. Offer ends January 8th, 2023. Excludes Bike, Bike Plus, and Tret Basics. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. So I switched to Boost Mobile and got this free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone. Why do you think they call it the Galaxy? Maybe because the Samsung Galaxy A23 has a huge screen. And galaxies are huge gravitationally bound systems of stars rotating around a supermassive black hole. And the phone is free? When you switch to Boost Mobile. Cool. You lost me at Gravitationally Bound. Switch to Boost and get a free Samsung Galaxy A23 5G phone.
Boost Mobile. Unleash your power. Limited time offer while supplies last. New customers only. Excludes tax. One device offer per line. Only available on certain networks. 5G not available everywhere. Additional restrictions apply. See your local Boost Mobile store for details.